You're listening to the Warrior Priest Podcast. And this is the Warrior Priest Podcast Midweek Debrief, number 78. And I'm the Warrior Priest, Donovan Riley. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Thank you again for giving your time and attention to this episode of the podcast. Today on the podcast, I wanted to shift gears a bit and discuss education, learning, and why schools don't educate. I think this is an important conversation to be had, especially after the past year to 18 months and what has happened in the West in particular. But I think it's a generations-long predicament, and it is only now coming to a head. I earned two bachelor's degrees, a master's degree and a PhD in church history. As far as academia goes, I took out a lot of student loans. And if there's anything that I have learned from my 18-some years in higher education, and then after all of that, teaching, lecturing, both at schools, colleges, conferences, and retreats throughout North America, it's that many people have been educated in the public school system, but very few people have learned anything. And I think whether you are a parent or not, the speech that I'm about to read for you can help you understand the distinction. For example, do you know the difference between intelligence and education? Do you know the difference between education and learning? Do you know about the history of compulsory education in the United States, for example? I think all of these are important questions to ask. And if you have not asked them to this point, I'm going to hopefully provoke you to think about them today. Because there is something happening in Western civilization at the present time. Call it an implosion, a disintegration, the death rattle of Western civilization, however you want to frame it. The question is often asked of me anyways, how did we get here? Why is this happening? Why don't people see what is actually going on? Why are people in rebellion against reality? Why are we arguing about pronouns in people's social media profiles? Why are we arguing that reading, writing, and arithmetic are racist? Why are people sheep? How can they be so docile? How can they not see what's happening right in front of their faces? Why can't they read the data? Why aren't they curious? Why can't they think for themselves? Why do they refuse to ask questions? Why do so many people, politicians, religious leaders, celebrities, cultural influencers, why are they all banging the same drum about COVID-19 and vaccine passports? I think the root of all of that, the entire phenomena of what we have experienced the past 18 months, can be summarized by the title of this speech by John Taylor Gatto, which was delivered in 1990 entitled, Why Schools Don't Educate. I think this is the root matter, is that from kindergarten through college or high school graduation into college and college graduation, and if 
you don't know what to do with your life or you just don't want to take responsibility like I did, you can go on and get a master's or a PhD. But what I discovered at the end of all of that was that I was highly educated, but most of my learning came outside the classroom. And there's different kinds of intelligence. There's different kinds of wisdom and knowledge. There's pedantry, there's street knowledge, there's street wisdom, there's life experience, there's vocational technical skills, there's intellect and being an intellectual, self-taught, autodidactic. There's many ways to look at it, to approach the subject. But at least for myself, and I hope for you, what John Taylor Gatto provides is a historical and systematic and critical approach to understanding education, compulsory education in the United States in particular, and how it has led us to where we are today as a society and as individuals. So I'm not going to talk a lot about what I read today because it's a little bit longer and I really want to get through the whole thing so that you can read it for yourself at the end as well. So I'll post the speech in the show notes. So let's dive in. Why Schools Don't Educate by John Taylor Gatto, delivered on January 30th, 1990. He says, I accept this award on behalf of all the fine teachers I've known over the years who've struggled to make their transactions with children honorable ones, men and women who are never complacent, always questioning, always wrestling to define and redefine endlessly what the word education should mean. A teacher of the year is not the best teacher around. And that's what he's doing when he makes this speech. He's received the Teacher of the Year Award. He has since become a heretic in the public schooling ecosystem for, well, what you're about to hear. A Teacher of the Year is not the best teacher around. Those people are too quiet to be easily uncovered. But he is a standard bearer, symbolic of these private people who spend their lives gladly in the service of children. This is their award, as well as mine. We live in a time of great school crisis. Our children rank at the bottom of 19 industrial nations in reading, writing, and arithmetic. At the very bottom. The world's narcotic economy is based upon our own consumption of the commodity. If we did not buy so many powdered dreams, the business would collapse. And schools are an important sales outlet. To repeat that, the world's narcotic economy is based upon our consumption of the commodity. If we did not buy so many powdered dreams, the business would collapse and schools are an important sales outlet. Our teenage suicide rate is the highest in the world. And suicidal kids are rich kids for the most part, not the poor. In Manhattan, 50% of all new marriages last less than five years. So something is wrong for sure. So here in the opening paragraphs, he's highlighting a couple of the significant consequences of a, well, absurd education, as he's going to call it. Our schools become drug dens, receptacles for drug trafficking. And now, as we know in 2021, receptacles for human traffickers and human trafficking. 
and that the powdered dreams have more and more become the prescription dreams. Suicide rates in the past year have skyrocketed. Kids are suicidal, not just rich kids. Middle-class kids, lower middle-class, working poor. Marriages, one in two marriages, ends in divorce within five years now. So since he said this in 1990, the situation has only gotten worse and even more critical and therefore an even greater crisis. So he continues, our school crisis is a reflection of this greater social crisis. We seem to have lost our identity. Children and old people are penned up and locked away from the business of the world to a degree without precedent. Nobody talks to them anymore. And without children and old people mixing in daily life, a community has no future and no past, only a continuous present. In fact, the name community hardly applies to the way we interact with each other. We live in networks, not communities. And everyone I know is lonely because of that. In some strange way, school is a major actor in this tragedy, just as it is a major actor in the widening guilt among social classes. Using school as a sorting mechanism, we appear to be on the way to creating a caste system, complete with untouchables who wander through subway trains begging and sleep on the streets. I don't think I even need to comment on that at the present tense because we have a caste system in this country now and the untouchables are fast becoming the unvaccinated. And the tragedy, I think, is that rather than address the fact that it's the public school system itself as a whole that has led to this social crisis, what we see are the distractions being thrown up to insulate and protect the public school system from their detractors, parents in particular. So in Washington State, for example, you don't have to know how to read, write, or do math to graduate from high school. That's what they're driving towards. But is that really the underlying problem, the root problem is racism, or is that simply a cover for communist ideology? The problem isn't whether Johnny can read, write, or do math. The problem is that Johnny's in public school and that the school itself promulgates a social crisis in so many different ways. It's not the reading, the writing, or the math that's the problem. It's the school system itself. It's the school system that's creating a caste system. It's the school system that's creating a whole class of untouchables. It's the school system that's creating a generation of people who will grow up to be sympathetic to communism and communist ideology and will go to college and their mentors, their peers, their advisors and professors will indoctrinate them further in the tenets of Marxism. But if you're down with communism and Marxism, well, then this is a positive. But if you're not, maybe it's time to think about why you're sending your children to public school or to school at all, because I've seen both charter and private schools in the past year also alter their curriculum, at least in Minnesota, to embrace the teachings of Black Lives Matter and Marxist ideology. So it's not just the public schools anymore. Gato continues, I've noticed a fascinating phenomenon in my 25 years of teaching. 
schools and schooling are increasingly irrelevant to the great enterprises of the planet. No one believes anymore that scientists are trained in science classes or politicians in civics, civics classes or poets in English classes. The truth is that schools don't really teach anything except how to obey orders. This is a great mystery to me because thousands of humane, caring people work in schools as teachers and aides and administrators. But the abstract logic of the institution overwhelms their individual contributions. Although teachers do care and do work very hard, the institution is psychopathic. It has no conscience. It rings a bell, and the young man in the middle of writing a poem must close his notebook and move to a different cell, where he must memorize that man and monkeys derived from a common ancestor. Our form of compulsory schooling is an invention of the state of Massachusetts around 1850. It was resisted, sometimes with guns, by an estimated 80% of the Massachusetts population. The last outpost in Barnstable on Cape Cod, not surrendering its children until the 1880s when the area was seized by militia and children were marched to school under guard. That is the history of compulsory public education in America. You will send your children to public school or we will come for them and we will take them by threat of violence. That's how it all started. 1850. You must go or we will seize them from you. You as a parent are no longer responsible for your children. The state will take responsibility now for your children. We will exercise authority as parent for you in your place in regards to your children. And if you don't like it, we're going to take away all your options. So, Gatto continues, here's a curious idea to ponder. Senator Ted Kennedy's office released a paper not too long ago claiming that prior to compulsory education, the state literacy rate was 98%. And after compulsory education went into effect, the figure never again reached above 91%, which is where it stands in 1990. I hope that interests you. Here's another curiosity to think about. The homeschooling movement has quietly grown to a size where one and a half million young people are being educated entirely by their own parents. Last month, the education press reported the amazing news that children schooled at home seem to be five or even ten years ahead of their formerly trained peers in their ability to think. And that number since 1990 has grown from one and a half million to 17 million, and it continues to grow to this day. I don't think we'll get rid of schools anytime soon, he says. Certainly not in my lifetime. But if we are going to change what is rapidly becoming a disaster of ignorance, we need to realize that the school institution schools very well, but it does not educate. That is inherent in the design of the thing. It is not the fault of bad teachers or too little money spent. It is just impossible for education and schooling ever to be the same thing. That's why I asked the question at the beginning. What's the difference between education and learning? 
between knowledge and intellect. And now what's the difference between education and schooling? Schools were designed by Horace Mann and Bernard Sears and Harper of the University of Chicago and Thorndike of Columbia Teachers College and some other men to be instruments of the scientific management of a mass population. Compulsory public education is a scientific experiment about the management of a mass population. Chew on that. Schools are intended to produce, through the application of a formulae, formulaic human beings whose behavior can be predicted and controlled. Public education from the very beginning was designed to be an experiment in how to control people's behavior so that they can be predictable and, more importantly, controllable. That is the fundamental premise of the institution of compulsory schooling. To a very great extent, he says, schools succeed in doing this. But our society is disintegrating. And in such a society, the only successful people are self-reliant, confident, and individualistic. Because the community life which protects the dependent and the weak is dead. Well, it, it rose from the dead, <laughs> like the phoenix. Because that's all that community life is functionally anymore, is dependency and weakness. A nation of victims, of fragile, weak, constantly offended, cowardly people who engage and interface with the world through their smartphones. Children who can't even make eye contact with other people because they have been conditioned to keep their eyes on their phone so they suffer from social anxiety. They suffer from the dread of having to talk to another human being face to face. So the products of schooling are, as I've said, irrelevant. Well-schooled people are irrelevant. They can sell film and razor blades, push paper and talk on the telephone, or sit mindlessly before a flickering computer terminal. But as human beings, they are useless. Useless to others and useless to themselves. I think at root, this is again why we don't talk about metaphysics anymore. We don't talk about God. We don't talk about serving your neighbor. We don't talk about sacrifice and honoring and respecting authority. We have created a nation, a society of useless human beings who are good for one thing. Pulling a lever, pushing a button, sitting in front of a computer. They are as useless to others as they are to themselves then. They believe in nothing. They hope in nothing. They worship nothing. And so they become nothing. Gatto continues, The daily misery around us is, I think, in large measure caused by the fact that, as Paul Goodman put it, 30 years ago, we forced children to grow up absurd. Any reform in schooling has to deal with its absurdities. It is absurd and anti-life to be part of a system that compels you to sit in confinement 
with people of exactly the same age and social class. That system effectively cuts you off from the immense diversity of life and the synergy of variety. Indeed, it cuts you off from your own part and future, scaling you to a continuous present much the same way television does. It is absurd and anti-life to be part of a system that compels you to listen to a stranger reading poetry when you want to learn to construct buildings or to sit with a stranger discussing the construction of buildings when you want to read poetry. It is absurd and anti-life to move from cell to cell at the sound of a gong for every day of your natural youth in an institution that allows you no privacy and even allows you into the sanctuary of your own home, follows you into the sanctuary of your home, demanding that you do its homework. How will they learn to read, you say? And my answer is, remember the lessons of Massachusetts. When children are given whole lives, instead of age-graded ones in cell blocks, they learn to read, write, and do arithmetic with ease, if those things make sense in the kind of life that unfolds around them. Many cities that I've visited, many people that I know and that I talk to have children who attend schools at what is essentially a work farm, a prison colony. When they arrive at school, they go through a metal detector. Some are patted down by security guards who stand at the door and wander the halls during the school day. They're made to now wear masks and social distance. They must follow arbitrary rules, such as walking one way down a two-way hallway, or everyone sitting on one side of a cafeteria table to eat. What are we teaching our children? We are teaching them to be prisoners, to think like prisoners, to have a mindset like that of a convict, We are teaching them to not think and to not move and to not speak unless they are given permission. That is not life. That is anti-life. School rooms are cell blocks. Modern schools, especially at the present tense, especially in large cities, are built in much the same way and run in much the same way as prisons. And yet, what do we say? Well, but what about school shooters? What about the drug dealers? What about the human traffickers? What about kids sneaking off campus during the day? Well, maybe those also are distractions from the real root issue, which is, how are we educating our children? Have we addressed the mental illness of the child who shot up the school or the mental illness of the children who attend school? who are drug-addled on prescription medications, who can't make informed, critical decisions for themselves, and therefore they fall victim to the wolves that come to prey upon the flock? Keep in mind, in the United States, almost nobody who reads, writes, or does arithmetic gets much respect. We are a land of talkers. We pay talkers the most and admire talkers the most. And so our children talk constantly, following the public models of television and school teachers. 
It is very difficult to teach the basics anymore because they really aren't basic to the society that we have made. Two institutions at present control our children's lives, television and schooling in that order. Both of these reduce the real world of wisdom, fortitude, temperance, and justice to a never-ending, non-stopping abstraction made only worse by the advent of smartphones, made worse yet by the advent of social media and streaming services like Zoom. In centuries past, the time of a child and adolescent would be occupied in real work, real charity, real adventures, and the realistic search for mentors who might teach what you really wanted to learn. A great deal of time was spent in community pursuits, practicing affection, meeting and studying every level of the community, learning how to make a home, and dozens of other tasks necessary to become a whole man or woman. I just had this conversation with a couple of my children the other day because their friends think that they're weird because they know how to cook for themselves and bake. Their friends think they're weird that they know how to hammer a nail or raise a garden. They think they're weird because they can identify different birds, different animals, and point out which animals are good for food and which animals do this for the ecosystem and how bees are necessary for human life to exist. They have life skills. They know how to fight and protect themselves and others. They're forced to be outside and engage with creation, to learn to live in the community, not apart from it. They're taught that they are free to serve others and not run away from others, and that the purpose of life is to be for others and not be away from others. Everything that they were not taught when they attended public school are the necessary tasks that form a whole man or woman being taught in public education? No. Because that is not the purpose of public education, public schooling. It is to educate, but it is a specific kind of education based on behavior modification and indoctrination. It is about control and about predictability. But here is the calculus of time the children I teach must deal with, he writes, or he says. And this is, I think, astounding. Out of the 168 hours in each week, my children sleep 56. That leaves them 112 hours a week out of which to fashion a self. My children watch 55 hours of television a week, according to recent reports. That leaves them 57 hours a week in which to grow up. My children attend school 30 hours a week. They use about six hours getting ready, going and coming home, and spend an average of seven hours a week in homework, a total of 45 hours. During that time, they are under constant surveillance, have no private time or private space, and are disciplined if they try to assert individuality in the use of time or space. That leaves 12 hours a week out of which to create a unique consciousness. Of course, my kids eat, and that takes some time. Not much, but because they've lost the tradition of family dining, it doesn't take that much time. But if we allot three hours a week for evening meals, 
we arrive at a net amount of private time for each child of nine hours a week. Nine hours out of 168. Nine hours out of 168 hours a week is allotted for the child to figure out who they are, uniquely who they are. And as he notes, it's not enough. It's not enough, is it? The richer the kid, of course, the less television he watches, but the rich kid's time is just as nearly prescribed by a somewhat broader catalog of commercial entertainments and his inevitable assignment to a series of private lessons in areas seldom of his actual choice. And these things are, oddly enough, just a more cosmetic way to create dependent human beings, unable to fill their own hours, unable to initiate lines of meaning, to give substance and pleasure to their existence. It is a national disease, this dependency and aimlessness. And I think schooling and television and lessons, the entire Chautauqua idea has a lot to do with it. Think of the things that are killing us as a nation. Narcotic drugs, brainless competition, recreational sex, the pornography of violence, gambling, alcohol, and the worst pornography of all, lives devoted to buying things, accumulation as a philosophy. All of them are addictions of dependent personalities, and that is what our brand of schooling must inevitably produce. Why are we drug addicts? Why are we obsessed with mindless sports, the competition, the athletes, the rules? Why do we treat sex like a game? Why are we addicted to the pornography of violence? We call it fear porn nowadays. And the gambling, the alcohol, and especially, as he notes, the devotion to buying and accumulating things that are just things. They have no meaning. They're unnecessary for the most part. And yet, what do we work for at our jobs but to squander our money, what little we, we are able to keep after taxes, on sweet nothings, on knickknacks, on tchotchkes, things that we know we are going to replace in a year or two or five. That's what schooling produces. So he continues, I want to tell you what the effect is on children of taking all their time away from them, time that they need to grow up and forcing them to spend it on abstractions. You need to hear this because no reform that does not attack these specific pathologies will be anything more than a facade. One, the children I teach are indifferent to the adult world. This defies the experience of thousands of years. A close study of what big people were up to was always the most exciting occupation of youth. But nobody wants to grow up these days, and who can blame them? Toys are us. Two, the children I teach have almost no curiosity, and what they do have is transitory. They cannot concentrate for very long, even on things they choose to do. Can you see a connection between the bells ringing again and again and again to change classes and this phenomenon of evanescent attention? I was just listening to a podcast this morning 
an interview with a former history teacher. And he noted that the attention span of his students was essentially two to three seconds, that he would assign them reading, and every two to three seconds they would pick their phone up and check it, and then put it down and read another sentence or two, and then pick up their phone and check it. And this was constant. And then when, we, when he would ask them to summarize or paraphrase what they had read, they could not because they lacked concentration. They lacked critical thinking skills. They were unable to digest the words on the page because they are inextricably addicted to their smartphones. They are, as Elon Musk said, a very low-functioning cyborg. Three, the children I teach have a poor sense of the future, of how tomorrow is inextricably linked to today. As I said before, they have a continuous present. The exact moment they are at is the boundary of their consciousness. Four, the children I teach are ahistorical. They have no sense of how past has predestined their own present, limiting their choices, shaping their values and lives. Five, the children I teach are cruel to each other. They lack compassion for misfortune. They laugh at weakness. They have contempt for people whose need for help shows too plainly. Six, the children I teach are uneasy with intimacy or candor. My guess is that they are like many adopted people I've known in this respect. They cannot deal with genuine intimacy because of a lifelong habit of preserving a secret inner self inside a larger outer personality made up of artificial bits and pieces of behavior borrowed from television or acquired to manipulate teachers because they are not who they represent themselves to be. And so the disguise wears thin in the presence of intimacy. So intimate relationships have to be avoided. I think of memes that I see posted all the time online. Some quote from a television show or movie with the actor or actress in the background of the meme. And people will live their lives by these mottos. And I'm not saying that what's said in a television program or a movie can't be a wise saying or motivational or inspiring. I'm not. But what I'm saying is that's not a real person. And the actor or actress portraying that person is not a badass in real life. They're a pretender. Sometimes they are, but rarely, especially nowadays. You go back to the days of Steve McQueen and Lee Marvin. Those guys were actual badasses. <laughs> those guys actually threw down in bar fights. Nowadays, what are actors and actresses? Well, they're mouthpieces for politicians. They're mouthpieces for China. They're mouthpieces for whoever pays them enough money. They are soulless, lifeless, anti-human, anti-life creatures. And yet, what do kids want to be when they grow up? Well, they want to be YouTubers. They want to be social media influencers. Why not? When they see Jake Paul, for example, what do they see? <laughs> what do they see when they look at Bella Thorne? What do they see? They see people that don't really do much making millions of dollars. So if I could make millions of dollars by making YouTube videos or doing something sensational or provocative to get people's attention, why would I want to grow up to become a carpenter? Why would I want to be a pilot? Why would I want to be a high school teacher? I can be a YouTuber. 
But all of this comes out of public schooling. Seven, the children that I teach are materialistic, following the lead of school teachers who materialistically grade everything, television mentors who offer everything in the world for free. And eight, the children I teach are dependent, passive, and timid in the presence of new challenges. This is frequently masked by surface bravado or by anger or aggressiveness, but underneath is a vacuum without fortitude. Why do you think Jordan Peterson is so popular? Or Jocko Willink? Why are you listening to this podcast right now? Because we are offering you an option to compulsory public schooling. We are offering you an option to the prevalent, dominant social ethic of dependency, passivity, and timidity. We are saying that it's suffering that produces real love. Suffering and pain are a gift when used in the service of a cause greater than yourself. To recognize that life is not a burden, but a series of challenges. That you have the opportunity constantly to level up, to grow, to become better and stronger, to improve yourself, your relationships, your home, your family, your church, your community. All you have to do is step out of line and stop marching with the herd off the cliff. All you have to do is recognize that you too are a victim of this scientific social experiment called public schooling. But to do so is to spit in the eye of the monster. It is to go and fight the dragon in his lair instead of waiting for him to come to your town and burn it down. It is to say When I look you in the eye and I talk to you, this is not bravado. This is not arrogance. It's not a false front. This is who I am. I am confident. I am strong. And I am bold because I know myself. I know who I am. Something I've been doing some research on in relation to another topic is the difference between being nice and being good. And how our society has made the two almost synonymous. And yet, what does it mean therapeutically and socially to be nice? Well, in my research, being nice, smiling at people, being welcoming, what's called hospitable, is a sign to the other person that you are not a threat. And so often, even though your gut, your prefrontal lobe your survival instincts will kick in and say of the person in front of you, this person's a threat. Be cautious. Your frontal lobe, your rational brain, which has been brainwashed into believing that being nice is the most important ethic, the most important value that you can exhibit in relation to other people, says, but look at this guy. He doesn't look threatening. Look at the way he's dressed. He's not carrying a weapon. He's not grimacing at you. His body language isn't saying he's a threat. Come on, you know, your gut, now you're just being overly cautious. Being nice. Well, God forbid you're nice or you're not nice. This in Christianity has been one of the contributing factors to the implosion of the churches. Christians have to be nice because otherwise people will see us as being judgmental and hypocritical. We have to be nice. Why? Why should we be nice to people 
that vilify and demonize us? Why should we be nice to people who don't want to listen to the gospel of Jesus Christ or accept our invitation to come to Bible study or church or whatever it may be? Why not be good instead of nice? <clears throat> Excuse me. And if you don't know the difference between being good and being nice, then you understand what I'm talking about. Because you too have been indoctrinated into believing that they're synonymous. But a good man, as Jordan P. says, is not a weak man. A good man is a virtuous man. A timid man is not. A nice man is not a good man. A nice man is a coward, passive. He's like a dog that rolls over and shows you its belly. That's what a nice man is. That's what a nice Christian is. We don't need nice men and nice Christians. We need good men. We need good Christians. Go back. Read the book of Judges in the Old Testament. That's good. Those are good men. Those are saints. Those are people whom God chose, who he called holy, saint. If you don't believe me, go to the letter to the Hebrews in chapter 11 and look up the list of saints. Samson is in there. Then go read about the life of Samson and tell me that God doesn't have a different moral standard than we do at the present tense. Or as in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Lucy says, or Mrs. Beaver says to Lucy that Aslan is good, he's just not safe. A good man, like a good God, is not safe. That's why he's good. Because sometimes bad men come to the door, and a good man has to become a bad man in order to keep the other bad men away from the door. And if you don't know the difference, it's because you're nice. You're too nice. You're a pushover. You're a pansy. It's because you're timid and you're passive and you're dependent on other people's opinion of you. You've been indoctrinated. You've been brainwashed. So to continue, (laughs) Gatto says, I could name a few other conditions that school reform would have to tackle if our national decline is to be arrested, but by now you will have grasped my thesis whether you agree with it or not. Either schools have caused these pathologies or television or both. It's a simple matter of arithmetic. Between schooling and television, well, between schooling and television all the time, the children, all of their time is eaten away. That's what has destroyed the American family. It is no longer a factor in the education of its own children. Television, schooling, In those things, the fault must lie. Who is it that indoctrinates us? Who or what is it that teaches us that family isn't as important as obedience to the state? Who is it that teaches us there is no God and that our ultimate authority is the state? What are the tent pegs of communism and Marxist ideology? There is no God but the state, and there is no family, specifically no father, except the state. The state is your God. The state is your parent. Therefore, listen and obey the state. Who is it that controls the public school curriculum? The state. Who is it that controls your child's mind and behavior? The state. And how is this reinforced? Through public schooling and through television. 
what has destroyed the American family, television, and compulsory public schooling. So what can be done, he asks. First, we need a ferocious national debate that does not quit, day after day, year after year. We need to scream and argue about this school thing until it is fixed or broken beyond repair, one or the other. If we can fix it, fine. If we cannot, then the success of homeschooling shows a different road to take that has great promise. Pouring the money we now pour into family education might kill two birds with one stone, repairing families as it repairs children. How can you get your children to respect alcohol and drugs? How can you teach your children the dangers of abusing alcohol and drugs? How can you teach your children the consequences of being in relationships with other people who push alcohol and drugs on them? and pressure them to make decisions that are immoral and unethical and ungodly. Well, you don't turn them over to a school system that is godless and lacks a moral compass. You do it yourself and stop abdicating authority to others. Then, instead of pouring money into a system, an institution that actually custom tailors your children toward a predilection, for substance abuse, for peer pressure, for having a low opinion of themselves, low self-esteem, confusing them in the most formative years of their lives, you take responsibility for what God has given you to do, which is to parent your children and to raise them up in the way that they should go. Because genuine reform is possible, he says, but it should not cost anything. We need to rethink the fundamental premises of schooling and decide what it is that we want all children to learn and why. How can we raise our children to fight dragons when we send them to cowards who don't know how to fight? How can we train our children to be dragon slayers when we turn them over to the people that offer human sacrifice to the dragon? Running away from the dragon or feeding our children to the dragon are not the two best options. And yet that is what we are given when we put our children in public school and private and charter in a lot of cases too. For 140 years, this nation has tried to impose objectives downward from the lofty command center made up of quote-unquote experts, a central elite of social engineers. It has not worked It won't work, and it is a gross betrayal of the democratic promise that once made this nation a noble experiment. Now, this is important because he's going to talk about the Soviet Union under communism. Pay attention to the similarities to the present tense in the United States. The Russian attempt to create Plato's Republic in Eastern Europe has exploded before our eyes. Our own attempt to impose the same sort of central orthodoxy using the schools as an instrument, is also coming apart at the seams, albeit more slowly and painfully. It does not work because its fundamental premises are mechanical, anti-human, and hostile to family life. Lives can be controlled by machine education, but they will always fight back with weapons of social pathology, drugs, violence, self-destruction, indifference, 
and the symptoms that I see in the children I teach. How is that sentence not describing to a T what happened since last year in our society? What are the weapons of social pathology? Drugs, violence, self-destruction, indifference, and the symptoms that I see in the children I teach. It is high time we looked backwards to regain an educational philosophy that works. One I like particularly well has been a favorite of the ruling classes of Europe for thousands of years. I use as much of it as I can manage in my own teaching, as much, that is, as I can get away with, given the present institution of compulsory schooling. I think it works just as well for poor children as for rich ones. At the core of this elite system of education is the belief that self-knowledge is the only basis of true knowledge. What have we seen plastered across corporate media and social media the past eight, nine months? Don't do your own research. Don't engage in critical thinking. Listen to the experts they know best. The most untrustworthy person on social media is a self-educated person, a person who does their own research. You need to listen to the experts. They're educated. They know what's best for you. One, that's a logical fallacy called appeal to authority. And two, it goes against thousands of years of education. Self-knowledge is the only basis of true knowledge. Everywhere in the system, everywhere in the system, at every age, you will find arrangements to place the child alone in an unguided setting with a problem to solve. Sometimes the problem is fraught with great risks, such as the problem of galloping a horse or making a jump. But that, of course, is a problem successfully solved by thousands of elite children before the age of 10. Can you imagine anyone who had mastered such a challenge ever lacking confidence in his ability to do anything? Sometimes the problem is the problem of mastering solitude, as Thoreau did at Walden Pond or Einstein did in the Swiss Customs House. One of my former students, Roland Lagardi Lura, though both his parents were dead and he had no inheritance, took a bicycle across the United States alone when he was hardly out of boyhood. Is it any wonder then that in manhood, when he decided to make a film about Nicaragua, although he had no money and no prior experience with filmmaking, that it was an international award winner, even though his regular work was as a carpenter? Right now, we are taking all the time from our children that they need to develop self-knowledge. This has got to stop. We have got to invent school experiences that give a lot of that time back. We need to trust children from a very early age with independent study, perhaps arranged in school, but which takes place away from the institutional setting. We need to invent curriculum where each kid has a chance to develop private uniqueness and self-assurance. Think about that. Just pause for a second and think about what he's saying. We need to leave our children alone. We need to give them the space to solve problems on their own. And then 
if they can't solve the problem, they come to us. Whereas today, we hover over our children. We're overly protective of our children. We need to intrude in every corner of our children's lives because we don't trust them. We don't trust their friends. We don't trust the world. We don't trust the people on social media to be actual people or actual kids. It's just constant. And therefore, why are we shocked that our children don't grow up to become unique individuals who are self-reliant when we never even gave them the option? So rather than give them a problem to solve, and if they can't figure it out or they get hung up somewhere, they come to us and ask for help, we flip that and say, before you even get to the problem, let me do it for you. That doesn't encourage uniqueness and self-reliance. It encourages dependency, fragility, timidity. He continues, a short time ago, I took $70 and sent a 12-year-old girl from my class with her non-English speaking mother on a bus down the New Jersey coast to take the police chief of Seabright to lunch and apologize for polluting his beach with a discarded Gatorade bottle. In exchange for this public apology, I had arranged with the police chief for the girl to have a one-day apprenticeship in a small town police procedures. A few days later, two more of my 12-year-old kids traveled alone to West First Street from Harlem, where they began an apprenticeship with a newspaper editor. Next week, three of my kids will find themselves in the middle of a Jersey swamp at 6 a.m., studying the mind of a trucking company president as he dispatches 18-wheelers to Dallas, Chicago, and Los Angeles. Are these special children in a special program? Well, in one sense, yes. But nobody knows about this program but the kids and myself. They're just nice kids from central Harlem, bright, alert, but so badly schooled when they came to me that most of them can't add or subtract with any fluency. And not a single one knew the population of New York City or, or how far it is from New York to California. So think about that. They can't add or subtract with fluency. So what does he say? Math is racist. We got to get rid of it? No. Instead, he says, let me give you some real-world experience so that you understand why you need to learn math. Let me give you some real-world experience so you understand the consequences of throwing a Gatorade bottle on the ground. Let me give you some real-world experience so that you can face challenges and overcome them and be strengthened and become confident as a consequence. Does that worry me? Of course, but I am confident that as they gain self-knowledge, they will also become self-teachers. And only self-teaching has any lasting value. I tell this to my kids all the time. If I do the math problem for you, for example, if I parse the sentence for you, you'll watch me do it and you'll copy me, but you'll never actually understand why I did what I did. So you do this. You take on the challenge. You do the math problem. You parse the sentence and then bring me the work and then you explain to me your process and how you came to this conclusion. And then I will say whether or not you were correct or incorrect in your final answer. And then we'll work through it together so that we can understand how to do the theorem correctly, how to parse the sentence correctly. But I will not do it for you. I will not think it through for you. I will not understand the problem for you. You will do all this yourself. And then you will show me the process. You will teach me 
how you came to this conclusion. And then if it's incorrect, we will do it together. We will learn together so that my children gain that sense of, I just conquered this math problem that I've been stuck on for three days. I just figured out how to parse this paragraph when 12 weeks ago I was crying at the thought of parsing this paragraph. The confidence, the self-reliance and self-assurance that they gain from that, it's incredible to behold. It's amazing because I was never allowed to do that as a child. We have got to give kids independent time right away because this is the key to self-knowledge. We must re-involve them with the real world as fast as possible so that the independent time can be spent on something other than more abstraction. This is an emergency. It requires drastic action to correct. Our children, our children are dying like flies in schooling, good schooling or bad schooling. It's all the same. It's all irrelevant. What else does a restructured school system need? It needs to stop being a parasite on the working community. Of all the pages in the human ledger, only our tortured entry has warehoused children and asked nothing of them in service to the general good. Again, if you want to understand why society blew up last summer, if you want to understand why the elections are so violently contested, if you want to understand why Marxist ideology is a part of the curriculum in so many states, if you want to understand why our children are burning down businesses in their own communities, this is why. We warehouse them, and we ask nothing of them in service to the general good. In fact, we perpetuate an eternal childhood. For a while, I think we need to make community service a required part of schooling. Besides the experience in acting unselfishly that will teach, it is the quickest way to give young children real, real responsibility in the mainstream of life. Imagine if you took your class, for example, and instead of social studies class, you're going to walk downtown and you're going to help those local business owners clean up the wreckage of their businesses after last night's rioting. You're going to repaint their store. You're going to help them restock the shelves. You're going to get to meet their family. You're going to learn about their business and why they're here in this community. And then after you finish all of that work, rebuilding, painting, restocking, getting to know the business owner and his family, understanding why they're in your community, do you really think children will be motivated to grow up and burn down that store again? Of course not. Because every time they go by that store, they're going to remember, I rebuilt that. I know who that person is in there. I know why they depend on this store for the health and well-being of their kids. And so rather than burn down their store, I'm actually going to be the one standing outside protecting their store from rioters. But if parents don't teach that and the school teachers don't teach that, television doesn't teach that. Who's going to teach them that? Why are we surprised when it happens then? when no one wants to take responsibility for their education. I'm going to skip down to the end now, just because there's like four or five paragraphs, but I don't want to take up too much of your time today. So here it comes, because this is actually what I said. Family is the main engine of education. Family, not the state, 
not teachers, no matter how well-meaning they may be, no matter how good they may be at the, the vocation of teaching, family is the main engine of education, and you must stop thinking of education as what happens at that building between the hours of 8 and 3, Monday through Friday. Education is more than just the cell block at your local school. It's life. It's all of life. And family is the main engine of that education in how to live and be a whole man or woman. So if we use schooling to break children away from parents, and make no mistake, that has been the central function of school since John Cotton announced it as the purpose of the Bay Colony Schools in 1650, and Horace Mann announced it as the purpose of Massachusetts schools in 1850. We're going to continue to have the horror show that we have right now. The curriculum of family is at the heart of any good life, and we have gotten away from that curriculum, and it's time to return to it. The way to sanity in education is for our schools to take the lead in releasing the stranglehold of institutions on family life. To promote to promote during school time confluences of parent and child that will strengthen family bonds. That was my real purpose in sending the girl and her mother down the Jersey coast to meet the police chief. I have many ideas to make a family curriculum, and my guess is that a lot of you will have many ideas too once you begin to think about it. Our greatest problem in getting the kind of grassroots thinking going that could reform schooling is that we have large vested interests pre-emptying all of the airtime and profiting from schooling just exactly as it is despite rhetoric to the contrary. Our greatest problem is in the fact that we don't want to reform schooling and we pass it off to other people to do the job for us. And yet we know, we know that between television and schooling, we are fighting a losing battle for our children's attention, for our children's life, and most specifically then their future. Our greatest problem in getting the kind of grassroots thinking going that could reform schooling is that we have large vested interests pre-emptying all of the airtime and profiting from schooling, just exactly as it is despite rhetoric to the contrary which is what I was talking about with Washington State. So I'm talking about with Minnesota and protected government speech around Marxist ideology and curriculum. There are people that profit from our children and therefore they have no motivation whatsoever, no vested interest in reforming the schools despite all of their rhetoric to the contrary, which their actions have proven for generations. We have to demand that new voices and new ideas get a hearing, my ideas and yours. We've all had a belly full of authorized voices mediated by television and the press. A decade-long free-for-all debate is what is called for now, not any more expert opinions. Experts in education have never been right, never. Their solutions are expensive, self-serving, and always involve further centralization of institutional power. Enough. Enough of them. It's time for us to empty their airtime. It's time for a return to democracy, individuality, and family. I've said my piece. Thank you.
John Taylor Gatto, January 31st, 1990. Like I said, I'll include a link to this speech in the show notes so that you can read the whole thing for yourself. I wanted to read this today primarily because it's one thing to talk about what it means to be a hero, a protector, a warrior as an adult. But what about the next generation? How are we educating our children to be warriors, to be able to defend themselves, protect themselves and others? What are we doing to prepare our children to live by a warrior ethos? Prudence, temperance, courage, justice, charity, kindness. What are we doing to teach our children the difference between being nice and being good? Being educated versus being schooled. Being intelligent versus being well-read. What are we doing to raise up a generation of warriors who are self-educated? Truly educated. Why are we not doing more? We say that we love our children and we would do anything for them. And yet it seems to me at this point that what we're doing by sending our children to public school is a form of child sacrifice to a monstrous institution that profits off of our continued ignorance and the ability to predict how we're going to speak and behave and then control us. A system that profits off of indoctrination and brainwashing. A system that closes the future to us and discourages us from stepping out of line and thinking for ourselves, and going on grand adventures, and facing challenges. A system, an institution, a monster that has us scared and hiding under the covers of our beds. And what I suggest today is that we collectively stand up, parents and those who are not parents, because you're responsible for our children too, because you're responsible for the good of the community, and that means you too. We collectively stand up and we say, enough. You don't get any more airtime. From now on, we're in control and we'll decide the direction of the institution and we'll decide what will be taught and what kind of curriculum you will offer our children. Because God gave me my children. I'm responsible for them. I answer to him for my children, not you. The state is not God. The state is not father and mother. And it's far past time, over 200 years past time, that we took back our children from the state so that we may teach them that we have a good and loving God who will protect and defend us against our enemies. We have a loving and kind Savior who died for our sin. That there is good in the world and there are good people in the world who are brave and courageous, who are heroic. These are the models. These are the examples that we can raise our children to follow if we just take the first step and say, no, no more. Enough is enough. You have had your way with me, with my children. We're done. We're going to take back control. We're going to take back responsibility for the future. And it starts right here, right now. To me, that's how we recreate 
a warrior class within our society that isn't vilified or demonized or called extremist. That's the, that's the seeds. That's how we produce fruit for five, six, seven generations. We need to educate our children. We need to raise them up in the way that they should go. And if the school system wants to participate, then get out of the way. And if they don't, then we'll walk away and we'll make our own schools. We'll teach our curriculum. We'll educate our children in the way that a warrior should go. In the way that someone who embodies the values, the good, socially good and individually good, whole person forming values of temperance, wisdom, courage, and integrity, kindness, charity, forgiveness. That's what the world needs. That's what our children need. They need us to show up for them and stop sacrificing them to false idols, false gods, these monsters that feed off of them as they fed off of us. Enough is enough. Now is the time to stand up. Now is the time to fight for our children and for the future. That's all I got today. Peace.